Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I invite you to turn with me as we're receiving the offering to 1 Kings. Go with me to 1 Kings. The song that I had asked Daniel to lead in, and he did wonderfully this morning, was the last song that we sang, and it's taken right from Revelation chapter 5, where, uh, this is not up in front of you, I'll just read it to you, Revelation 5 verse 2, an angel proclaimed with a loud voice when they came to the seals to be opened. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth could look inside. Who is worthy? No one. Who is worthy? And that's where the song comes out. Chris Tomlin was part of the making of that. Who is worthy to do this? Remember when I first heard the song, I quickly went to chapter 5. I heard the song back here about maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, and I Some of you, if you were on our Zoom when we were out of the churches and we were on Zoom, Lori and I, I think, twice did the song. We led in the song. And uh, it came out of this to speak of the worthiness of the Lamb. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? No one is worthy. They couldn't find. And then he said, when when no one is worthy to look inside to do any of it, in verse 4 he says, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls. No one was worthy. But... But do not weep. The lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. Amen. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw the lamb looking as he had been slain. So we're going to be, we've been following. Today I'm taking a hiatus from our study. We've been for the last 10 weeks studying, following John to the heart of Jesus. We started with the gospel. We went through the three letters of John Next week, we're going to start into chapter 1 of Revelation. In preparation of that, I was, a few weeks, I always kind of try to get direction a few weeks ahead of time. And when I began to prepare for Revelation, we'll probably cover Revelation. At this point, we'll plan to cover Revelation in five sessions. I'll explain next week. You're going to hear the book of Revelation in a way probably you normally don't. Okay? Um, I'm, I'm going to approach it differently. Uh, what I think is different than what most approach it. But I'll talk more about that next Sunday. I invite you to read, begin to read, especially if you would read the first chapter of Revelation for next week, the first chapter. You know, I've had over, the, over my years of ministry, multiple people come and ask me to preach from the book of Revelation. I've had nobody ask me to preach from the book of Malachi. And I'm actually going to, before I get to Revelation, I need to talk about Malachi for a bit today. We're actually going to go to Malachi chapter 3. No one has asked me to preach from Malachi. Um, but uh, I, I, there's a link here that I have to, I feel I need to address before we understand the significance. This is the bridge over to Revelation. 
I'm going to say, I'm going to say it again next week. Revelation was never meant to be written for you to figure out the chronology of future times. It was never written for that. It was written, I will say it again next week. I don't have a problem saying it now. It was written so that when difficult times come, you keep your eyes on Jesus. It's not for you to figure out the times. But when difficult times will come, keep your eyes on Jesus. That means you're into the word. That means into the body of Christ. You worship, you adore him. You seek his face. You dig in deeper. Keep your heart positioned in the right direction. The book of Revelations was written for that purpose. Now, more of that later. I want you to go to 1 Kings chapter 17 because this is the text today. Before we read 1 Kings chapter 17, I need to give you a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of a prelude of why 1 Kings 17. First of all, in the story of 1 Kings 17, there are three characters. There's a prophet, Elijah. There's a woman, she is not named. And there is a young boy, her son. He is not named. Prophet, we do know is Elijah. The woman is called the woman from Zarephath. And the young boy is just the woman's son. The story seems to be about a woman who is dying of starvation. Her son is dying of starvation, and the prophet is almost dying of starvation himself. But the story is so much more than that. God never gives a story simply to highlight a historical moment. He gives a story to highlight the events of the times. So in 1 Kings chapter 17, if you were to go chapters before that, and I have been in my own personal devotion, I've been into this period of time now, that the people had become wayward in their faith. A people who once served God diligently, fervently, and earnestly had become, had become captured by the cares of the world around them. God's people, God's children, no longer served him alone. They served themselves. And in serving themselves, they began to take on the pleasures and love and the appetite of the world around them. You could not decipher God's people anymore than you could all the heathen people of the day. They all looked the same. There was nothing that stood apart from God's people. They were just like every other lost nation when we come to 1 Kings. The kings themselves simply reflect the heart of the people. And the heart of the people, you know, and I know this is true today. You might criticize our government, but our government typically reflects the heart of the people it serves. So instead of getting all up in arms about the government primarily, God change our hearts because we elect What's already in our hearts. You don't like it. Then God help our hearts. This was what was taking place in Kings. The people had turned away from God. Turned to the heathen things of their day. And turned to the spirits. The evil spirits behind it. Oh yes they still held their high holy days. They still had moments of worship. They were if they were in today's term. They would go to church once in a while on Sunday. They would own a Bible in their home and, home, and you could probably find it somewhere on a shelf. And they could probably quote a verse or two. But nothing separated them from the world. 
And so what happened? God, the book of 1 Kings 17, what's happening in the physical with them dying of drought. Drought was upon the land. God was showing in the physical what was already happening in the spiritual. In the spiritual, they had dried up. In the spiritual, there was no revival anymore in the land. There was no move of God in the land. His hand was silent. And they were reaping what they had sown. 1 Kings 17, that's the setting. So when we begin to read of the prophet, the widow, and her son, I want you to read more than three people. This is about a a nation. This is about a time and place of people. A remnant that was supposed to be standing out and flowing in the blessings of revival had long since ceased and things had dried up. And there was nothing that separated them from the rest of the world. Now we pick it up. Let's read it. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now Elijah, remember in the middle of a drought here. This is in the middle of a drought. People are dying. Animals are dying. It hasn't rained for years. The crops have all long but withered up. And so the, this is a dire situation. There's no backup plan. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, verse 9. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Remember Elijah's, he too is starving. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? Now remember, this is in a time of drought. Water is very, very scarce. Verse 11, as she was going to get it, he called again. And, and, bring me please a piece of bread. Verse 12, as surely as the Lord God lives, she replied. She recognized him as a prophet. As surely as the Lord God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks. In other words, she's saying, when you, when you talk to me, I was already gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. This is our last meal. Verse 13. Elijah said to her, fear not. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Note these next two words, but first. Everybody say it with me. Okay. This is all about what we're talking about today. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. Seems pretty selfish, doesn't it? Like, don't worry about the starving little boy here. Get me something to eat first. That's what it seems like, verse 13. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son, verse 14. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not, he's he's prophesying here. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Supernaturally, supernaturally it's going to work. Verse 15, she went away and did As Elijah had told her, everybody say did. Did. She did it. She didn't have a discussion on it. She didn't go back and 
take a vote. She didn't contemplate it. She didn't go home and pray about it. She did. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So, and here's the end of the story. Just, I'm sure there was a lot that took place in there, but it finishes off. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. Verse 16, for the jar of flour was not used up. The, jar, the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Father in heaven, I just ask that you would help us to be able to apply your principles here that are always timeless to not a historic lesson, but to a lesson for us today. Lord, may we not be thinking of someone else. I pray that you would help us to move beyond our own trepidations and have ears to hear what your word is saying to us today. Help your word to speak loudly and clear. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible. But there's something interesting. The book of Revelation, Revelation comes from the word revealed. The word revealed, God revealed to John. Similar, living in a time, it was written, they think, somewhere 80, 90 AD, that a people who once were in revival, in the early book of Acts, you read in 30, 40, 50, 60 AD, the time of Christ, and then after Christ ascended to be with the Father, the apostles went out, and we read of it in the Acts of the Apostle. I call it the action of the church. The Acts of the Apostle uh, may be interestingly enough for you, certainly for myself. After I'm done the midweek series, we're in the middle of a midweek series right now, and again, invite you out Wednesday evening uh, to join us, uh, 645 in the cafe. Uh, after we're done the series, which I'm in a series, I've got four more points in this series, I'm going to be actually going to the book of Acts. I'm going to be talking about, and it's going to be about the action of the church. Book of Acts, Acts comes from the word action. What is the action? God's called the action. What are we actually doing? Uh, when I do meetings, when I do board meetings, uh, any meetings I have, and, and we have, we call minutes afterward, and we have, I always put on action. What is required of us? So who volunteered for what? Who's going to do what? And it's the action points. And, and the book of Acts is the action of the Bible. It's the, the points of where we put our boots to the ground and do what's been called instead of just pontifying it. We actually do it. We get roll up our sleeves and do the work. So we're going to be talking about that in a few weeks. The book of Revelation, God's revealing in a time that the people, it was post-revival. And he was telling us, here's what you need to prepare for. Again, next week. I was intrigued when I went to the end of the book, the end of the, the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi. I'm kind of teasingly talked earlier, nobody has asked me to preach for Malachi. Um, when I went to Malachi, Malachi is also a book of revealing. It finishes off something. It finishes off the Old Covenant. And the last prophet to speak that went into the recorded word of God, Malachi, was 400 plus years just before Jesus was born. And, and it's preparing the way of the Lord as did all the prophets. But in the preparation of this, Malachi was addressing a very difficult time. It was a time again where there was spiritual poverty everywhere. It was like you could not find the remnant of God. They like were all amalgamated with the world. They did not separate themselves. They, didn't, they, weren't, they weren't living for God. They were living for themselves. They had become consumed 
We call it consumer society. It had become consumed in their society. There was nothing that made you to ever believe that they were a child of God. The promises of God were not being realized in their life. They were absent from that. It was like they were living a curse. So in Malachi, and can you go to that? I need you to go to that before we come back to Elijah. We're going to come back to Elijah in the story in a moment. Malachi chapter 3. In the midst of all this, Malachi is calling out. Remember, he's just one chapter away. Chapter 4 is the last. He's one chapter away from closing off. There would be 480 years before there's silence until Jesus is born. 480, that's a long, long time. I mean, what was happening in the world 480 years ago from today? And then you just realize that's a long time. 480 years where it would be silent time. And so in Malachi chapter 3, he's doing something that seems absolutely unrelated to revival. And yet it is. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. The prophet calls and he calls the people in the midst of spiritual poverty. He calls them, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. That there may be food. There it is. If you want food, bring your tithe, he said. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. In other words, you will be blessed with fruitfulness. You will see the goodness of God. You will see blessings of God. You will have provision. What are you saying? Verse 11 again, I will prevent pests from devouring. Your vines will not drop the fruit before they're ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Now, in this text here, a more literal translation of that phrase in verse 10, where it says, I will throw open the floodgates of heaven. That is a picture. But another translation, more literal, is see if I will not throw open the windows of heaven. Windows let light in. You, um, you don't enter through the window. If you do, you're entering illegitimately. Windows are meant for to reveal. To reveal. And God says, test me in this that I will not reveal myself. Test me in this that I will not flood you with revelation. Now remember we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation, but we don't have revelation simply by studying a bunch of words and then trying to figure out what it means in the chronology of time. We have revelation is when God opens the windows. He says, see if I will open, but what's causing the windows to be blocked up? Why can't the light come in? Something's happening. He's addressing it. Prophet's addressing it. And he calls, he talks about bring the whole tithe. Now the word tithe means bring, bring the ten. Bring the ten and see if I will not release revelation upon you. Release blessing upon you. Bring the ten. You know, I live in a time and I struggle with this. I always do. Did again today. Always struggle about talking about possessions. Talking about money. Because there is a spoken and unspoken attitude, my money's my business and it's none of your business, right? 
It's there. It's just there. It's my, and now you're meddling with me. Now you're, you're trying to get something because, because we're used to being taken advantage of. We're used to being scammed. We're used to somebody trying to get their hand in your pocket. Lori and I just read, maybe some of you, we, I like to uh, read on my uh, phone the National Post. I will often read articles. And there's an article that talks about what Canada is the highest in. Anybody read that? What, Canada is rated in the highest. And I don't mean good. I mean bad, like the highest taxes in the world. We have the highest. You know, our phones, we have the highest rates in the world. I believe that because they're stupid high because we're stranglehold with three main, you know, Telus, Rogers, and Bell. We, and, and they won't let anything else in. I mean, all, we can keep going. There's about 10 of them National Post talks about. And we're going through. We kind of got depressed. And, and it's, it's like... It's like all these things that are reaching in, the highest taxes, you know, medical care, and yet the, the lowest satisfaction, <laughs> and, and on and on it goes. I, don't get me into that. I kind of got wound up a couple days ago, and I was reading it and go, oh, God, I began to pray anew for our nation. But there's something to be said. In the Bible, approximately there are 500 verses between Genesis and Revelation. Approximately 500 verses where God talks about prayer and how to pray. There's approximately 500 verses that talk about you need faith to believe in God. But there's actually 2,000 that talk about money. Now, if we just do math, it has to be a big deal. Jesus... Between the synoptic gospels, the four gospels, and a lot of them repeat the parables. But in all the parables, including the repeated parables that Jesus spoke between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's about 38. 16 of them are about money. So, I can't ignore it. We can't ignore it. There's something to be said. Malachi's talking about it. We won't understand revelation that will not be revealed. There's, the windows are not open. There's something going on. And I believe it's the reason Jesus talked so much about it, God talked so much about it, because he knows the chief competitor to living out your faith is your money. It's your money. It's things. It always was. First Kings 17, it was the things that pulled them back in. Just the cares about serving us, things, me. And what happened in the indictment of 1 Kings 17 wasn't that they were, they believed they were spiritual, but they lived for the material. My money's my business. Don't talk to me about it. And yet God very clearly says to the last prophet who would speak in the Old Testament, says, if you don't understand the principle of returning the ten, you will not have revelation. You will not see the fruit come to the vine. You will see the devourer devour it every time. And, and not referring to your finances. You say, well, I have a pretty good bank account. I live in a nice house. I drive a nice car. But we're talking spiritual. But spiritually, we're not seeing our prayers answered. Spiritually, we're not seeing our family come to Christ. Spiritually, we're not vibrant in our faith anymore. Spiritually, we can't find God. Spiritually, if the truth be told, we can't pray. Many times. And a whole new generation is growing up caring less about God. Because the windows are blocked up. Windows are blocked up. It has to do with the ten. The tithe means the ten. 
And it seems trivial. It seems, you know, another taxation upon another taxation, the tithe, the ten. But I have discovered that God uses the ten as a test. It's not fundamentally about the ten. The ten becomes a foundation, but the ten is a test. And I began to go back some time ago, and I shared this one other time because I discovered it, and it, just, it was too good to keep to myself. I'll share it again today. That I discovered that in the Bible, God uses the ten as a significance of testing. Let me give an illustration. When you think back to the Old Testament, how many plagues were there in Egypt? There were ten. We could also say, how many times did God test Pharaoh's heart? It was ten times he would test his heart. Ten was a test. How many commandments were given to Moses? Ten. Or we could say, how many ways was and is our obedience being tested? Are you obeying? Ten times. How many times did God test Israel when they were in the wilderness? You can count them out. Ten times. How many times did God test Jacob's heart by allowing his wages to be changed? He kept testing Jacob, how many times? Ten. How many days was Daniel tested in the very first chapter of the book of Daniel? Ten times. In the New Testament, Jesus gave parables. It wasn't two virgins. It wasn't five virgins. It was ten virgins. And ten virgins was about a test. It was about their test. There were ten days of testing found. If you go to Revelation chapter 2 verse 10, ten days of testing, testing, testing. Ten becomes a symbol of tests. And so when we come to this passage of Scripture found in Malachi, the last of the Old Testament, bring the whole ten into the storehouse. The storehouse. What's the storehouse? Well, we answer it because we need food. Food flows out of the storehouse. Spiritual food flows out of the storehouse. When you bring to the local expression, not the storehouse at the other end of the globe, the storehouse where you are part of the food. Bring it in so that there might be release. The windows would be opened in the storehouse so that you will grow, so that there's a future for you, so that there will be blessing. Ten. Came back to ten. Ten becomes the indicator of the heart, the test. And then he says, and prove this in me. As you give the ten, then I'll keep the devourer from touching the ninety. Then the rest, and it's not just about money. It's not, it's not primarily about money. The ten is the money. It refers to our possession. But the protection becomes the protection of everything that's touched. It's the revelation where the spiritual revival will flow. I had a revivalist tell me one time. This was a man. He came from England. We had him in our church. And he spoke this to me. He said, when our churches are in the place of giving if 70%, of the, 70, 80, or 90% of the people in the church, in the local church, were to be giving their 10% faithfully, so open would the heavens be over that church. They will be in revival. You could not stop revival. There will be a move of God. But when there's only maybe 5% or 10% or 15% who actually give of the 10, and they wonder, how come God tarries? Where is he? And so his call was, and it stirred my heart. It stirred my heart. His, he said, when you see seven, and, he, and he, had, he documented this, he traveled around, places that were moving in revival, he went back and he began to check, and they were typically flowing 70 to 80 to 90% of the people were following what Malachi had talked about. They were giving up the tent, and the windows were open, and floodgates were open, and the churches were being blessed. 
So many times I think, well, if I pray more, God will move. And, and I do believe prayer is so significant a part of that. If I just read more of my Bible, God will move. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my faith. You know, we, we hold on to that. And it's not that that's not without merit. But sometimes the greatest hindrance of the flow of the Spirit of God is when the offering basket comes by. And it keeps moving. Because what has happened, the heart has turned to another direction. And there's a spiritual drought in the land. It's over and over through the scriptures. Again, I come back to that. The chief competitor to a move of God is my possessions. It competes against what God wants to do in my life. Because my possessions are directly related to my heart. Where is it? Isn't it? Isn't it found in, is it Matthew 6, 21, I think it is, where it says, where your heart is, your treasure will be. So if I refuse him, that's where I've placed my treasure. I placed my treasure here, placed it here, placed it here. Matthew 6, 33 does say, but seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and then all the others will be added. Seek first his kingdom. So today, what matters, what comes first matters most. What comes first matters most. So let's go back to our story. I'm ready to go back now. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 13. Elijah had gone to her. It's in the middle of a drought, years of no rain. Elijah's hungry. She's hungry. Her son's hungry. They have nothing left. People are dying all around them. This story is a typical story of what was happening in their time. And Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. The story is about priorities. Priorities are important. What do we need to do first when faced with impossible situations? Ah, there's the question. What do I need to do first when faced with impossible situations? This principle I'm sharing is key to open heaven. It's about placing God first. I'm going to say honoring God. In the book of Revelation, you, Pastor Brett alluded to it in chapter 4. You read of it in chapter 5, chapter 6, where it says, Worthy is the Lamb of all honor. Well, what does honor look like? What does honoring God look like? I got three points here. They are number one, honor God with what you have now, not what you one day hope to have. God would have this widow feed Elijah while all she had was next to nothing. Strangest things, God's ways are not our ways. You would think God would send Elijah to the king or to the keeper of the storehouse. Somebody who has something to give you. But God sends Elijah to a person who has next to nothing. Clearly, God wants to use a starving widow to feed others. No one else would have picked her. I wouldn't have picked her. Probably you wouldn't have picked her to be the supplier of the need that day. But God does not work in the ways we work. God chose a widow who had one meal left. That was God who chose it. He sent Elijah 
to the widow of Zarephath. Here's the big question. Here's the big question. Is God sending Elijah to this widow to take care of Elijah? Because Elijah's hungry. Is he sending her, him to the widow to take care of himself? Or is God sending Elijah to this widow to take care of the widow? You see, Elijah goes and he asks for what she could give first. And it had to do all about her. It wasn't really about him. It looks about him. When it starts off, it looks like Elijah. How dare you ask the starving widow and her poor little boy for food, the last on their table. How dare you? It wasn't about filling Elijah's belly. It was about providing for her. So many times when God puts a test in front of us, it's not about God needs money. He owns the, hills of, he owns the cattle of a thousand hills. He doesn't need money. It's about the test of the heart. It's always coming down to the test of the heart. So this is not about Elijah, but what God wants to do for the widow. Elijah is really just a means to an end. I believe that God continues to use the things that don't up front make sense. So the first thing I want to bring to you here is honor God from the story of the widow. Honor God with what you have now, not what one day you hope to have. She God didn't, Elijah didn't ask her, what do, you, what do you think you will have one day? He asked her, what do you actually have today? Can you give it? Number two, God isn't honored at all until he is honored first. When he gets the crumbs, it's really not honor. When he gets what's left over, it's not really honoring. Actually, the only way, the only way, this is not a multiple choice question, the only way you can honor God is first. We call it the first fruit, the first giving of the first. It's one of the things that I do, Lori and myself, and we taught our kids when they first got their job, their first job of doing dishes at Swiss Chalet, and, and when they received the first, it was like, honor God with the first, not what's left over. Don't you look after these things and then say, okay, here's what I'm, gonna, here's what I'm deciding to give God. God's never honored if he's not honored first. It's a dishonor. He's not God. God remains, is about him being first priority of my life. As this widow was preparing her last meal with the last thought of what she had, Elijah made this request to her. Verse 13, we pick it up again. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. There's two words in this I want to draw your attention to. He says, but first make a loaf and then make something for yourself. But first, give me something. Remember, this is a story not about a man. Elijah represents God speaking. But first, give God something here. And then, you. First, God. See the priority. Very clear. It couldn't be clear. I looked at multiple translations. It's just the same thing. But first, make a small loaf for me from what you have, not what you hope to have, what you have right now, today. And bring it to me. And then make something for yourself. The order of these events is the point of this. There is nothing wrong with her meeting her own physical needs. Nothing wrong at all. But she needed to first start with God. Start there. She was convinced the reverse of priorities was best. She was convinced that she needed to first start with herself. And this really has little to do with how much you have in your possession. This principle is true for everyone. 
There are those like this widow could have said, well, why don't you go to somebody who has a lot and ask because they have some to spare. But this was not about that. This has nothing to do with how much you have today. It has nothing to do with what's in your house, what's in your pantry, what's in your bank account. It has nothing to do with how much you own. It has nothing to do with that. We often think that the wealthy are the ones, go get from there. They're the ones who support. But Jesus addressed this when he talked to a rich young ruler in the New Testament. The rich young ruler came up and said, what must I do to inherit heaven? Because he was struggling. He was not satisfied. He knew he was missing out. Yet he was very wealthy. But he knew there's something missing. And he began to rhyme off. Jesus was saying, you know, the commandments. And he was, yeah, I'm keeping a lot of the commandments. What was Jesus doing? He was saying, do you pass the test? And he was saying, yeah, I passed the test. Well, the test was all about this. Jesus asked him the ultimate question. He says, you need to give God what you've got. Sell it and give God. And the Bible says the man dropped his jaw and walked away. You see, he was doing a spiritual duty, but he had a lot, but he still couldn't give because it was in his heart to hold. And he did not give priority to God. So it has nothing to do with how little I have. And we taught our children, some of you likewise, when our children receive their allowance, you know, a dollar, then the 10 belongs to the Lord first. And when they got their first paycheck and it was like $120, then your 10% belongs foundational. Start off. Start off giving him the priority. And then watch what he does with your life as it flows forward. Watch what he does. It has nothing to do with one day when you get your own house and you pay it off. One day when you got something in the bank account. One day when you've got your own vehicle. One day when you've got everything established and you paid off your college and university debts. One day when all that happens, then, then give. It had nothing to do with that. And in this story, it really does come down to the God is not honored until he is honored first. And it came down to the first and then. First and then. First and then. If you have very little, or whether you have much, either way, we miss the possibility of taking what you have out of circulation and giving it to God's storehouse. All of us cannot imagine taking what we have and giving it away. It requires faith for the haves. It requires faith for the have-nots. Those that have a lot requires just as much faith as those who don't have hardly anything. Therefore, God isn't honored until he is honored first and lastly, what comes first establishes our happiness for the future. This is kind of the cool part of the story. Verse 14, let's pick it up. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word the Lord spoke by Elijah. Again, this was all a lesson, a lesson of spiritual priorities. I'm going to say straight up, there is nothing that repulses me, Wayne Lucas, more than prosperity teaching. Those that say if you just give something, you'll get a healing. That repulses me. That is an abuse of God's word. The widow never got rich. She never got rich. God provided for her big difference. Never got rich. I am not into prosperity teaching. You cannot back it up and support it biblically. God provided for her. That's what you and I need is provision. 
God provided for her. People that say, you give me an X amount of money, you'll get a healing. Give me an X amount of money, God will give you 10 times that back. No, we cannot support that biblically. You're not going to hear me say that. I do not believe it's godly. The text here said she never became rich. The text clear here said that she and her family were under God's protection for a long, long time. And yet if she gave at the moment, if she refused to give at the moment, I should say, then her day would have ended at the end of when the sun went down. But it didn't end there. The cool part of the story is tomorrow came, next week came, next month came, and she still had everything she needed. And so did her son. And we can believe so did her son's sons. Because provision was met for the days that followed. Her future, she could eat her future today and the future would end at the sun going down. Or she could invest the priority today and watch God give the tomorrows down the road. And it comes down to the issues of first and then. It really does come down to that. It's huge. Again, the chief competitor, the chief competitor of your relationship with God is your money, your possessions, and our mindset around it that often amalgamates with the things of this world. Perhaps we have missed what God is teaching, that what appears to be the seemingly uneventful moments where it comes opportunity to give God first, the ten are actually awaiting a test to see if you are going to have the blessings in your future. And then when we see the repercussions of the lack of blessings in the future, we wonder what happened. Pray more. Read more. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. But perhaps the thing God's trying to get a hold of us is your heart's treasure's gone somewhere else. Give it back to me and watch the miracle. Give it back and watch. The woman here had a choice. It truly was up to her. But it was no small matter, that choice. It seemed so small, but it was huge. That's why it took up so much section of Scripture. All of God's promises for her were on the line when he asked her, but first, give me something. All of it was on the line at that very moment. And then she went off and she did it. Oh, praise God, she did it for her sake, her son's sake, and the generation that followed. It's not enough that she offers some tiny leftover of kingdom business. It's not about giving to a local church. It's not about giving to a pastor. It's not about simply giving to a particular ministry. It's about giving to the kingdom storehouse so that spiritual blessing will flow. It's about priorities. Many of us today are earnestly desiring God's touch and grace. I know there's multitudes of you here today and online who are believing God to manifest himself in your marriage. There are those who are crying out for God. We prayed about this in our Zoom prayer meeting last night. We cried out. We, we took the scripture, the last two verses of James chapter 5. We prayed on that last night. God, we cry out for the wanderers, those who've wandered from the faith. God, we, cry out for, we cried out for that last night. And I believe many of you are contending for your families, your husbands, your wives, your sons, your daughters. Many of you, with regard to your jobs, you're contending your schools and the situation at school, your businesses, your careers, and this is honorable. But when we receive what God has provided me with provisions financially, when I get that, I need to give first to God's kingdom, his work. And it can't just be at my discretion. He says, test me in this, test me. It's the only time, I understand, it's the only time he's actually asked us to test him because a 10 is a test. Test me in this. Test me in this and see what happens. 
God will never force it from me. He will never rip my hand open. He will never force it. He will never hit me over the head. He will never force his will. But you need to know that although you can keep what you have for today, the blessings you're believing in for your future awaits a time to be fulfilled. God first. Like the widow, you can secure your future today, but fall short of securing your future tomorrow. It always remains your choice. What matters most is what comes first. <laughs> it comes down to that. That's why I put the title. What matters, what comes first matters most. It really does. So the widow's honoring of God and the sequence of her priorities makes the she comes to the full discovery that she has also, when she honored God that day, she secured a lifelong future. So the test, it continues. It continues. That's why I had to pause, have a hiatus before I jumped into Revelation. Because if we jump into Revelation without grabbing hold of the last book of the Old Testament, what he was trying to get across, then all we're going to do is try to follow a mathematical sequence to try to get God's blessing. It doesn't work that way. It never has. He talks about what's first in your heart. What's withholding in your heart. And he calls it forth. What matters most is what comes first. Matthew 6, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all the rest will be added. I'll keep the devourer from touching it. Honor God with what you have now, not what you hope to one day have. God isn't honored unless he is honored first. And thirdly, what comes first establishes your happiness for your future. So I invite us, don't wait. Give first. Doesn't become easier later on. I've discovered it actually becomes harder. So for our sake, our soul's sake, our future's sake, calculate what that looks like. God, in the test, I give you first. I give you first. I follow through. First Timothy, Paul spoke to Timothy in his first church, and he gave Timothy the same command. He says, Timothy, you're a pastor of this young church. Verse 17, chapter 6, 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So, Father in heaven, I pray this morning that, God, you would have ministered to our hearts, I believe, in the way you would want to minister. I pray that, God, we would not be confused of what your desire is. Lord, I pray that maybe there has been some revelation right here today. That you will have already begun the opening of the windows to reveal some things that, as you did to that widow, that you honed in on this one person as an illustration in a time of apostasy, of an illustration that in the midst of such spiritual dryness, give God first. Give God first. And then all these things would be added. The priority is everything. It's everything. And God, I pray that you would uh, continue caring enough about me, caring enough about my brothers and sisters here today, that you would not ever, ever stop convicting us. Oh God, the day that I no longer feel compelling conviction of you is the day I've turned my back on you. God, may I always feel the prying of your Holy Spirit because God, you are redirecting me from the drift that I tend to go towards so that you would provide for my future and those that come after me.
God, Lord, we are living in a time in which there all around us is uh, spiritual poverty. But God, I, I've never for a second ever believed your, your body of Christ, your sons and daughters, were meant to live absent from your glory, absent from the open heavens you've got for us, absence from absence, answers to prayer. I believe, God, you still are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You continue to desire to move in our families, in our jobs, in our schools, in our bodies. You continue to want to do that. You have not changed. And so, Lord, I believe as you speak to us today, this is an element that that God maybe is something that just has to be realigned. And that, Lord, we need to reprioritize. What comes first matters most. Help us, God, to make the decision, not one day. Help us, God, to make that decision sooner than later. And to test you in this. To see that you are not faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.